Good morning. It is so good to see you all here with us today. We are so glad that you have come to join us in worship, and we do trust and pray that God will at this time speak to you in the ways that you need to hear from him, and I need to hear from him. I'll tell you, um, when I wrote the, the sermon notes this week, I decided I was going to write with confidence, and uh, so the way that this was supposed to go was that I was supposed to come in a Notre Dame jersey because Notre Dame was supposed to have smacked Ohio State in the mouth. That was the plan. And for those of you that don't know, I am a, I, I am a devout Notre Dame fan from the earliest days. Back, back in 19, the, the late 1980s, there was a quarterback that came out of Goshen High School. His name was Rick Myrer. And you probably don't know that name anymore, but he was labeled the golden boy. And he was all over, all over Sports Illustrated. He was all over the news. And he was going to be the, the next big thing at Notre Dame, which he did a really good job. Um, but his mom was my first grade teacher. And so I have been a big Notre Dame fan ever since. And then it became even more so... I promise I'm going somewhere with this. It became even more so when I moved to West Virginia. Because in West Virginia, you, you aren't just a WVU fan. It is a way of life. Like You can't walk into a B-dubs in an opposing team's uniform for fear of things, I kid you not, being thrown at you. And they will boo you and chant profanities at you as you walk through the restaurant. Been there, done that. And so while I was in West Virginia, living in what I call exile, I became very attuned to what was going on with Notre Dame back home. And it was a big thing. Like, it could ruin my whole week because I was so attached to what was going on with Notre Dame. Come forward today, I have grown up a little bit, but not completely. And I had every intention this morning of coming rolling in in green pants and a Notre Dame jersey and ready to go. Now, I have muted it a little bit, but those that know, know. I'm wearing the green and the football bow tie in mourning of Notre Dame's narrow loss yesterday. And I come in here into my church where I'm the pastor, and I look here in the front row, and what do I see but two board of personnel members wearing OSU colors and outright OSU shirts. Where's, where's the Larry, chair of the deacon board? We're going to have to have a discussion later with some wayward church members. Coming in here, shoving it in my face, bragging about OSU taking the W yesterday. You know, it's funny how we get so attuned to some of these teams, isn't it? Now, maybe you don't. Maybe you're like, oh, college sports doesn't matter. But I'm here to tell you that the kids that played the football game on Friday night between Brownstown and Seymour, they care. Not just the kids that played, but the kids in the stands. And let's go a step further. Parents in the stand who have no other connection with the team other than they live in Seymour. They don't have anybody that plays for either side. They, they've, never been, they've never attended the school, but there they are, and they are rabid, diehard, yelling at the teams, yelling at the fans, yelling at the refs, all those things. And we get really into that. America is known for being, like, locked in with our sports teams. And there's, that's all good fun, and there's good and, and bad that goes with that. But I was thinking about that last night, or this week even, as I was coming into this, and I was thinking about how, how really ridiculous that is. Like that we, we watch these games, and then we think that we have bragging rights. 
right? Like that's really what I wanted. I wanted to be able to every time I address Notre Dame for the next year to be able to look these fine folks in their eyes and be like, neener, neener, neener. (laughs) That was my intention. And it's funny how we attach ourselves to these things, isn't it? Whether it be our local teams or our national teams, it's funny how, how we tie ourselves to that. You know, I, not one time, not one time in my entire life have I stepped on the football field to practice with Notre Dame. Not one time. They didn't, I know it's going to come as a surprise to you, but they didn't recruit me to come play. Not, not one time, not one time have I, I actually only attended a game once and we got smoked by Air Force. And so they couldn't hear me yelling my suggestions from the stands over Air Force's theme song. Not one time have I been yelling at the TV when I thought to myself, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to call the coach and tell him how he could have fixed that play. Not one time. And, and you know what? In all of their rudeness, they never asked. But here I am, all of these miles away, feeling in in the heart of hearts a deep sense of loss this morning because Notre Dame lost a game, a game I didn't play in, a game I didn't practice for, a game I didn't coach, a game that I wasn't even there to add my voice to cheer for. But I feel like, for some reason, I have had a loss and they have bragging rights. It's kind of ludicrous, isn't it? What do you have to brag about? You went to Walmart and bought a shirt. You didn't do nothing. I didn't do anything. Like even, well, maybe like, oh, I didn't go to Walmart. I went to Dick's and bought the good stuff. You still didn't do anything. But we do. We like to brag, don't we? We as Americans, we like to be proud of our things, whatever they might be. And we get super locked in and our, we, we begin tying our personality to it. And we think that because we are associating ourselves with this team or that team, that, that we then get to own the win with them. You don't have anything to brag about. I don't have anything to brag about. We didn't do anything. We need, we need to learn some humility in our lives. And that's always the case. But, but I think particularly at, we need to remember this as we consider what Christ has done for us. Can, as we consider our salvation. As we consider the, the fact that, that we have been redeemed. None of us has really done anything to earn. Not, not really. None of us at all has done anything to earn God's favor or grace. We have nothing to brag about spiritually. And Paul talks about that. Paul talks about that in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. If you have a Bible, turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, starting in verse 16. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, starting in verse 16. And it says this, I repeat, let no one take me for a fool. But if you do take me as a fool, then tolerate me just as you would a fool, so that I might do a little boasting. In this self-confident boasting, I am not talking as the Lord would, but as a fool. Since many are boasting in the way the world does, I too will boast. You gladly put up with fools since you are so wise. 
In fact, you even put up with anyone who enslaves you or exploits you or takes advantage of you or, or puts on airs or slaps you in the face. To my shame, I admit that we were too weak for that. Whatever anyone else dares to boast about, I'm speaking as a fool. I also dare to boast. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they Abraham's descendants? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I am out of my mind to talk like this. I am more. I have worked much harder. Been, been in prison more frequently. Been flogged more severely. And been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I, I have been in danger from rivers and in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face daily pressure of my concern for all the churches. Who is weak and I don't feel weak? Who is led into sin and I do not inwardly burn? If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weaknesses. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, who, who is to be praised forever, knows that I am not lying. In Damascus, the governor under King Aretas had the city of Damascus guarded in order to arrest me, but I was lowered in a basket from a window in the wall and slipped through his hands. I must go on boasting. Although there is nothing to be gained, I will go on to visions and revelations from the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether it was in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know. But God knows, was caught up to paradise and heard inexpressible things. Things that no one is permitted to tell. I will boast about a man like that. But I will not boast about myself. Except about my weaknesses. Even if I should to boast, uh, choose to boast, I would not, not be a fool. Because I would be speaking the truth. But I, I refrain. So no one will think more of me than is warranted by what I do or say, or because of these surpassingly great revelations. Therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it from me, but he said, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power might rest upon me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. This is a really interesting passage and in, in the way that Paul weaves in and out of this idea of boasting and humility and what he qualifies as being boastworthy and, and what he qualifies as being in other places as he talks about the same garbage or dung. 
But Paul, Paul is making a point that he makes often to the Corinthian believers. Corinthia, Corinth was, was a, a very wealthy city that had, that, that had much trade passed through it. They were very affluent and very powerful. And they were used to be, being treated in a certain way. They were used to being able to do what they wanted. They were a very proud city. So as Paul's talking to them about, about humility, talking to them about boasting, Paul in both letters has to come to them and say, hey, you've got nothing, nothing to boast about. Paul makes the point over and over again, explicitly, he clearly says it, that boasting about our own greatness is foolishness. Boasting about our own greatness is foolishness. Much like the, the opening illustration, me boasting or, or you boasting about your chosen teams and how great they are when you stood on the sidelines and did nothing. That is foolishness. Paul says, you boasting about our own greatness, our own goodness, and, and not just greatness in, in as far as what we achieve and what we do in our own strength, like as our jobs or, or what we achieve in sports and athletics or, or what we achieve in these other areas of life. Paul is, is very clearly talking about spiritually, our goodness, our righteousness, the, the inherent value of who we are on a spiritual level. Paul says, you have nothing to brag about. That boasting about how great you are and, and your own merits for salvation is utter and complete foolishness. Paul is particularly talking about two different things. Basing our lives of faith on the perception of others and or our own personal abilities or achievements. He says that's a fool's errand. Basing your self-worth, basing your, your, your meritorious uh, accomplishments and, and your eternal salvation upon what others think of you or what you think you can do or achieve. Fool's errand. Utter foolishness. And again, this is a thread that Paul continues to pull. This is, this is not a one-time thing for Paul here in, in chapter 11. If you notice, the verse starts with, I repeat... Right? Like th th this, is, this is not a thing where Paul is, is just, just getting to this point. This is something that Paul has said again and again. And the fact is he said it in two, actually three letters. Brief aside, did you know that 2 Corinthians really is not the second letter to the Corinthians? It is actually the third letter to the Corinthians. There's one that is lost to us. So we don't know what the first one says, but, but we do know what the two that we have say. And both of them, Paul is like, you got to stop this. This is craziness. This is foolishness. If we were to look back, and you can check them later, I believe I put them in the notes. In 2 Corinthians 3, 1 through 5, Paul refuses to present letters of recommendation to convince the Corinthians to accept his authority as an apostle or to receive his ministry. Which again, is craziness, is it not? That this is the third letter and still Paul is feeling like these people are not receiving from him as an apostle the leadership and the guidance that he's given via the guidance of the Spirit. Instead of, of giving these letters of recommendation that they shouldn't need, Paul asserts that his confidence is rooted in the calling of God and the obvious power and presence of the Holy Spirit upon him. 
I mean, remember, Paul, this is the guy that in Acts that we know that, that he was working one day and someone said, hey, there's someone over here that needs healing. And Paul's like, well, take him this rag. And the rag is taken to the person and the person is healed. We can look and we see Paul doing incredibly miraculous things, Paul being saved in incredibly miraculous ways. And, and, and Paul says, I'm, I'm not going to commend myself to you. God has already done that. I'm not, I'm not even going to justify this with comment. You know what God has done in and through me. You know. This isn't a secret. I don't need to boast about it. I don't need to brag about it. I don't, I don't need to lay out a resume for you. You know the truth. As a matter of fact, Paul says to them that, that you yourselves are the letter of recommendation which God has written upon your hearts. Your changed lives, your existence as a church, that's the letter of recommendation. In 2 Corinthians 5, 11 through 12, Paul reminds the, the, the Corinthians that the goal for the follower of Christ is never to impress people. But to serve and please God. Any pride that we have should be focused on God's action in and for us, not on our personal performance or the perspective of others. In 2 Corinthians 10, 12 through 17, Paul points out that trying to establish our greatness based upon comparisons to other people is utterly worthless. We're going to come back to that point here in a minute. But Paul says, look, you're trying to make comparisons and determine how good you are and how great you are by other sinners is just dumb. Utter foolishness, Paul says. We aren't trying to please them anyway. They aren't the standard. Our worth is not established in what we've done or what we will do. It's not established even in, in what we will become. Our worth is established and rooted in who Christ is and what Christ has done and in his power and presence moving in and through us. It's not what we do. We ain't nothing great on our own. If we were to go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, the very first chapter of 1 Corinthians in verses 10 through 30, Actually, the entire chapter, Paul talks about our upside-down view of wisdom and foolishness. That for the world, the idea of, of Christ crucified, risen and coming again, that our salvation comes through the sacrifice of the Savior. To the world, that is utterly foolish. The idea that, that life, our eternal life, comes through the Savior's death. It's foolishness to the world. But, Christ, but Paul says, for us, it, it, is, it is the wisdom of God. It is the only true wisdom is understanding that it is only through faith in Christ that we become anything. It is only through Christ that there is anything of worth and of merit in us. We have worth because Christ has decided that we have worth. Paul is reminding them He's not, he's not trying to beat them down. It's not what he's trying to do. He's not trying to undercut their, their, their sense of, of humanity. He's not trying to undercut the, the value of, of the things that they love in life. Paul is just trying to put things in perspective. And he's trying to remind them that you didn't save yourselves. He also goes on to say, look, Paul didn't die for you. 
You, you, don't get in, you don't get into heaven because you listen to Paul preach. And listen, if you can't get into heaven by listening to Paul preach, you sure can't get in by listening to Jeremy preach. I mean, that man re- wrote, again, half the New Testament and half of one book is about him. If you can't hear him and just be saved because you were, you were saved under him, if it doesn't based on him, then it can't be based on any other human. If you can't be saved and you can't claim any worth or extra merit because you went to Paul's church, then you certainly can't claim any extra merit or worth because you go to this church. It's not about that. But we do get that twisted sometimes. And Paul's like, don't. Don't get it twisted. You talking about anything else as being the standard and the reason for your salvation. Foolishness. Utter foolishness. It is only by and through the work and person of Jesus Christ. Doesn't Acts tell us that there is one name under heaven whereby we must be saved? Newsflash, that name is not your name. It is not my name. There there is no other savior. There's, There's no religious, political, civic, social, entertainment figure in the world that can save you in and through their own merits. It is only by the name of Jesus Christ. Verse 16 through 18, Paul Paul says again, Hey, tolerate me as you would a fool. Man, don't don't take me a fool. I am no fool. I, I am no fool, which we again know. Paul was a very intelligent person. He was very educated. He was well thought of. He was eloquent. And Paul says, but if we're going to do this fool's errand game, then let's do that. So I'm not a fool, but for a moment, let's pretend I am. I'm going to play the fool for a moment for you. Since you have such a habit of tolerating fools, not only suffering fools, but celebrating them. Again, this was a trend of the Corinthian church. Realize and remember that in 1 Corinthians, it is the Corinthian church that Paul has to say to the Corinthian believers, hey, look, if you got someone in the church that's sleeping with their stepmother, not something to brag about. You don't don't hold that person up. And that was what was going on in their church is they were were bragging about the sexual exploits of members amongst others. And, and, And the more debaucherous you could become, the more the Corinthian culture valued you. Paul says, what is wrong with you? Like that's not even named amongst the Gentiles. Even the world outside of the church recognizes, yeah, you shouldn't do that. Paul says, you got this all backwards. You are fools. Y'all tracking with me. This was a foolish church bragging about things that that one should not brag about. They were were consistently looking for the next big thing that would bring them along. They were looking for the thing that would would engage them and entertain them, something that would set them apart. It sounds kind of familiar, doesn't it? We may not be that level of foolishness, but we do have a problem. I'm actually reading a book right now that's, that's entitled Entertained to Death. We're always looking for whatever that next big thing is. And we, we certainly in America have a, a Messiah complex where we're constantly looking for some other Savior to save us and elevating them, if not above Jesus, at least on par. we got to have Jesus and, Jesus and, Jesus and. And Paul's like, stop. For the Corinthian church, it was Jesus and the law. Paul says, what's wrong with you? 
He, he makes a note that this is a problem. He's, he tells them as we go down, he says, in fact, you even put up with anyone who enslaves you or exploits you or takes advantage of you or puts on airs or slaps you in the face. The issue that Paul sees here is these people are saying, yes, Jesus, but Jesus also and what these Puritanic Judaizers are saying. We've got to have Jesus, but we've also got to be righteous on our own. Yeah, it's Jesus and good works. Yeah, it's Jesus, but it's also living by legalistic standards. That was what was going on, that, that we've got to live by the letter of the law, Jesus and this. And what happens when we add Jesus to the law? Well, well we no longer have freedom in Christ. Paul says in other places that, that when, when we are under the law, we are constrained by the law, that we become slaves to the law. And Paul says, look, by doing this, by comparing yourselves to other people, you are becoming slaves to their perspective. By, by comparing yourselves to, to socially acceptable standards and what the world around you thinks, you are becoming slaves to those people effectually. Utter foolishness. I love Paul's line here where he says, hey, look, you're, you're putting on airs. You're, you're allowing these people to, to, to capture you, to hold you down, to, to, to limit you, to even slap you on the face. And I love the line at, at verse 21. He says, to my shame, I admit that I was too weak to that. Paul's like, go ahead, come swing. I will lay these hands. There will be a laying of holy hands right now. You slap me. I am too weak for that. It's hilarious. Here we have Paul talking about humility, and he's like, there's a line. Like, I know that Jesus says turn the other cheek, but I promise you, you don't want to walk down this road. I'm too weak for that. I, I am too weak. And perhaps he's not just talking about the slapping thing, but he's right on, on the majority of them. He's like, look, I, I, I am not going to allow anyone else to take away from me the freedom that is mine in Christ. I'm not going to, to depend on anyone else for salvation. I'm not going to allow anyone else to, allow me, to, to make me believe that I somehow have to earn my own salvation. I am too weak for that. I know that I need Christ. What's that saying that comes around every once in a while about people of faith, that, that the Bible and that Christianity is a crutch for those that are weak of mind? That is absolutely true. We shouldn't be offended by that. The fact that, is that Paul says that. It is because we are weak that we need Christ. In humility, we should say, you know what? You are exactly right. I am too weak to do it on my own, just as is every other human in this world. And I understand that without Christ, I cannot do it. I cannot make it, that it is only through Jesus. You're right, I am too weak. I am too weak. Are we humble enough for that, though? I know I struggle with that. The way of this world is all about works. It bases our value on what we do, what we achieve, what our talents are, what our ability level is. This, this again, creates within us a kind of spiritual slavery by which we put others in a position of power by basing our actions and attitudes on their evaluations of our actions. It pulls us into an endless cycle of trying to do and achieve more in, in order that, that our service and, and opinions of other, in, in the service of the opinions and thoughts of others. It is a fool's errand. It is a game that we will never win because the world is impossible to please. And the truth is it doesn't lead to anything effectual that makes a difference for our eternity. There will always be something more to do, someone else to impress, something else to accomplish, some other position of power or prestige to maintain. And if we allow those things to become the standard, 
we will be stuck in a cycle of slavery. And Paul says, that's foolish. And Paul's whole point again, I talked about it earlier, the, the major flaw in the way of the world is that we start with the wrong standard. The standard to which we're comparing ourselves. Here's the thing, like if I compare myself to you and you to me, then I might be able to make it, right? There are times that when we compare ourselves, I might compare myself up against you and I'm like, well, I'm pretty good compared to, to him. Like I'm not perfect, but I am better than them, 110%. The Dunning-Kruger effect tells us that that's exactly what people believe. That the vast majority of Americans, at least, believe that we are, on average, better than average. Like, this is, this is a psychological study you can read. That we, on average, believe that we are better than average. It is a statistic, statistical impossibility. We can't all be better. That's what I hate about C, right? Like, a, a C in, in school being average. That can't be average. Like, that cannot be the average. That can be the bottom of passing, but that cannot be average. Because if the average of the class is an A, then my C is well below average. I'm going to tell you, as a high school student, I felt pretty good saying I was average, but I was not. The fact that I graduated as number 25 out of 48 says that I was just below the line. There was actually a story several years ago that, that illustrated this really well. There was a player in the NBA by the name of Brian Scalabrini. Anybody heard of Brian Scalabrini? Yeah, like two of us. Um, Brian Scalabrini, there's a reason for that. Brian Scalabrini was a player for the Boston Celtics. Red-headed dude, played for a couple of teams, other teams as well. He was six foot eight, built kind of like LeBron James, but he was not LeBron James. It's, Pale white dude sitting on the end. He was the perfect Celtic. Sitting on the end of the Celtics bench. He barely played. And what, when he did play, he just didn't do much. Which led a lot of people to comment at the beginning of the internet age about how, oh, I could play better than Brian Scalabrini. Like, I, even I could do better than him on the court. And so all of these rumors kept going around. And finally, Brian Scalabrini got together with some, some Boston area radio hosts. And they said, all right, you think that you're better than me, Brian Scalabrini. Let's play. Let's see. So what they did is they organized what they called the Scallenge. And the Scallenge was that they were going to set up four games, four basketball games, for people to come in that they would broadcast to play. It's great. You should go look at it against Brian Scalabrini. And they didn't just pick average Joes, which was great. They didn't pick like people like you and me that would be um, community-centered champions that could win and feel good about themselves because they're playing 10-year-olds. Like, no, they picked people that actually had talent. One guy was a six-foot-five, five-star prospect for getting ready to go into college. He was gonna, they thought he was going to be a D1 athlete, good ball player. He's tall and, and lanky, good ball player. The second player that they had Formerly played for the Syracuse Orange. He was a Division I basketball player that got time on the court. So he wasn't just an average player. He was a high-achieving player. The third player was a guy who played overseas professionally and who was currently playing in the NBA G League, which means that he was just at that level right before you broke through into the NBA. So they did these games, right? They, 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 they brought them together and they played these games. Brian, Brian Scalabrini, the, the bench player from Boston. And, the, and the, it was a series of games of one, one versus one to 11. By the end, Brian Scalabrini 
had won the games, all four games, by a combined score of 44 to 6. 44 to 6. No one scored more than two points against Brian Scalabrini. And re- you may realize that I didn't tell you who the fourth team was. The fourth team was three on one, the three radio hosts against Brian. And Brian Scalabrini famously said after the game, I am closer to being LeBron than you are to being me. You know what the problem was? They were comparing themselves to the wrong standard. They were comparing themselves to the wrong standard. How much more so when we compare our righteousness against one another and then compare it against Jesus? The Bible tells us, again, this is something that comes up often, not my fault, it's in the Bible all over the place, that we all fall short, right? That we all fall short. That all of us, that none of us are righteous. Not even one seeks God. The wording here, when Paul talks about this self-praise and the foolishness of it, it, it's actually, do not, when he he says boasting, he says, Don't yourself praise. And I love that wording because he reverses it later when it becomes a positive thing because the problem is inherent in the wording. That the issue comes when we put ourselves first. When we think that we are the top. When we think that we are the best. When we think that we are the standard. When we boast in and of our own power, we're, we're comparing ourselves to the wrong standard and our boasting about our own greatness is nothing but foolishness. Then Paul turns, he makes a pretty, pretty abrupt turn as he starts talking about his own qualifications. And he, he, he notes through all that he says that the most glorious parts of our lives are actually those that connect us to Christ. The most glorious parts of our lives are those that connect us to Christ. If any Christian, again, had a right to boast about their own accomplishments and their own righteousness, the things that they did for God, it was Paul, was it not? The man had an impeccable resume on almost every level. And Paul starts comparing him to these other fools. He's like, we're going to play the fool game? Let's play the fool game. He says, are they Hebrews? And his exact wording is, so am I. So am I. This isn't about nationality. Uh, Paul was part of a very small percentage of people that continued to maintain the cultural traditions and languages of the Hebrew people. He's like, I'm an insider of insiders. I speak Hebrew. I know Aramaic. I know the old languages. I know the old. Are they, are they, are they part of the inside, the high class Hebrews? So am I. I am too. Are, are they Israelites? So am I. Can, can, can they back their background? Can they look back and tell you how they're attached to the original 12 tribes? I, I can do that. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. I, I, have, I, can, I can do it too. So, so can I. Are, are they servants of Christ? Paul's like, I'm, I'm going to go super foolish here. I am more. I am more. I am too. I am too. I am too. I am more. Then Paul takes is boasting from foolishness to pure madness. I want us to look again at verses 23 and following. Paul says, are, are they servants of Christ? I'm out of my mind to talk like this. I'm more. 
I have worked much harder. We can get with that, right? I have worked harder. I've achieved more. I've accomplished all these things. And, and that's the way that, that our boasting would go, wouldn't it? Not Paul. He says, I have worked much harder. Been in prison more frequently. Been flogged more severely. Been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times shipwrecked. Spent a night and a day in open sea. Been constantly on the run. Been in danger from rivers. Been in danger from bandits. Been in danger from my fellow Jews. In danger from Gentiles. In danger in the city. In danger in the country. In danger at sea. And in danger from false beasts. Believers, I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep, known hunger, thirst, gone without food, been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face the daily pressure of my concern for all the churches. Whoa, Paul, like that's not stuff to brag about. I've been in jail. Been in jail more than you. They stripped me naked multiple times and beat the snot out of me. Woo, yeah, Paul. These are not things you brag about. These are things that, all of the things that Paul begins to brag about are actually things that, that bring shame. That's not, that's not refrigerator material that you take home to mama. But here Paul is bragging about all of these horrible things. Things that are meant to bring shame. But Paul realizes that it's not about him, that, that while those things are difficulties, what they do is they create opportunities to illuminate what God is doing in his life. Paul understands what we need to understand, that God is most glorified when we, re when we recognize our weaknesses and our deep need of his power and presence and live in total reliance upon him. See, Jesus flipped the script. Where foolishness becomes wisdom and wisdom becomes foolishness. Where the great become the least and the least become the greatest. And all of Paul's boasting, all of his pride was not directed to what he himself had done, but on moments where he couldn't have done it on his own. Where his, his literal physical survival was completely contingent upon the activity and the movement of the hand of God. In the economy of God's kingdom, strength isn't found in self-reliance or personal power. But in humble, sacrificial service in the image of our Lord and Savior. Our aim in life should not be to make much of ourselves, but to make every effort to let Christ shine in and through us. Reflecting his glorious power and presence. The only thing that we can rightly boast about is the greatness of our God. The only thing that is worth making much of is our gracious Savior who consequently brought about our salvation through a cruel death, through a shameful death of crucifixion and calls us to likewise sacrifice ourselves in service to him and the world. And Paul makes the point very clear that God's grace is our greatest strength. God's grace is our greatest strength. Our weaknesses, sufferings, and struggles are graces themselves, graces from God, reminding us of our great need for his intervention in every aspect of our lives. Verse 7, Paul says this of chapter 12. 
He says, because of these surpassingly great revelations, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger from Satan to torment me. Uh, That wording's important because the wording indicates that it's a gift. Paul's not just saying, hey, God God afflicted me. He's saying, look, God, God gave me this gift of grace, which was suffering. We don't think like that, do we? We think, how can we escape it? How can I work my way out of the difficulty? When, when Paul says, look, no, 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 that, that suffering kept me humble. That suffering was a thorn in the flesh. I didn't enjoy it, but it was given me to God by, by God so that I would remember that God is good, that I would remember that God was gracious, and so that God would have an opportunity to show his divine hand and his glory by bringing about my salvation. I don't know what you're going through. I don't know what you're facing. I don't know what your struggles are. But the scriptures tell us that if we, if we look to Christ in the midst of our struggles, they are in fact themselves a grace from God. They are opportunities and avenues through which God can enter into our presence and bring about his great salvation. We need to turn our understanding Paul says, look, we don't have to like it. Paul, Paul says, hey, my, my suffering was so severe that I, I begged God to rescue me, but by God's grace, he didn't. He joined me in it. Who, who can't relate to this? We've all had thorns in the flesh that felt like literally hell on earth. Messengers from Satan. We've all begged God to take our pain and suffering away. And we've all had moments that in his grace, God said, no. These moments will come again and again. When they do, we have to learn to lean into God's grace and trust him to carry us through it. He's done it in the past and he will do it again. There's a phrase I picked up several years ago through some difficulties that I was facing. And and I don't remember how it came to me. Uh, I, I truly believe it was that God gave it to me in my heart in a moment of need. But, but something struck me in the midst of my suffering, and it was this. We are never more like Jesus than we suffer or sacrifice to do what is right. We are never more like Jesus than we, when we suffer and sacrifice to do what is right. I believe that to be true. And perhaps part of the reason that it rings so true is that in our moments of suffering and struggle, we not only reflect the life of Christ, but we are forced to seek and rely upon his power and presence just to persevere. When we feel or think ourselves strong, we're content to do it for and by ourselves. But when we recognize our weaknesses, we have no other choice but to seek a savior. When we recognize that that it is foolishness to seek a savior, our own salvation, and that wisdom comes in humbly seeking Christ and relying upon his grace to save us, that it is then that we find true strength that will sustain us through our struggles. In our strength, we have no bragging rights. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9 tell us this, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith, And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. It is only by God's grace that we are saved. It is only by God's grace that we are sustained. 
It is his face that we should seek. It is his image into which we should be molded, and it is him that we should follow. Jesus paid it all. And his Holy Spirit sustains and strengthens us through the struggle. We are his witnesses and should be his biggest fans. We have nothing to boast about. And boasting about our own personal accomplishments and greatness, boasting about our own righteousness and thinking that that we are something because of anything that we've done is utter foolishness. Salvation comes by grace through faith alone. And it is only in our weaknesses and recognizing our weaknesses that we can truly turn to Christ and accept his grace and salvation. All the bragging rights are his. And we should rightly brag on his great grace so that all might hear And be saved. Father God, I thank you for your goodness and your grace for us. I thank you that you freely and consistently offer us your salvation through your strength, through your power and presence. Lord, may you forgive us for the times that we've thought ourselves something. For the moments where we've elevated our own accomplishments. For when we believed ourselves better than we are. Lord, for when moments when when we've marginalized others because we thought, we were better than. Lord, I pray that we would be humble. Lord, that we would put pride in its proper place by by pointing it towards you. God, in your grace, make us more like Jesus. Help us to rely on you and to lean into your grace every day, knowing that your grace is our greatest strength. Lord, for those of us that are dealing with struggles even now, I pray that you would move and you would reveal yourself, Lord, that your strength would be enough. Walk with us in Jesus' name, amen.